Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 22, War of the Currents, Part 6, The Battle of Chicago, 1983. Did I say 25 episodes by Christmas? I, I, I meant 21. <clears throat> In my defense, it's been a pretty crazy last couple of months. Not only was there Christmas and New Year's, but there was the birth of a baby, travel for work, fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love. Miracles. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. So, I'm back now at long last. Thank you for your patience. And for the messages checking in to see if I was dead. But over the break, as I've considered my schedule and how often on average I've actually been managing to get these episodes out around all the other stuff going on in my life, I think it's time for me to finally accept the fact that this is not a twice-monthly podcast, but rather a once-a-month kind of thing, at least for the time being. So, I'm recommitting to producing one episode a month for the rest of 2019. I think that's achievable. And since I missed January, I will try my darndest to get an additional episode done this year to make it an even 12. Should circumstances change and I find myself with more time or flexibility, although with three kids I'm not sure that's going to happen for another 10 to 15 years, I'll look at ramping up production. Given the pace of my episodes over 2018, I don't think you'll notice too much of a difference, and hopefully you'll have at least one episode a month to look forward to regularly. Again, if I find the time, I have some other things I'd like to do, like setting up the show with its own webpage under the teslapodcast.com URL, rather than just having it direct to a subpage on my own website. That will help with SEO and searchability in Google. And I'd also like to look at some options for people to help support the production of the show, since the Canadian dollar doesn't go quite as far as it used to when you pay for hosting in US dollars. Again, all this requires some time to actually implement, so for now I'll just have to keep you posted. Now, as we do each time, before we begin the episode, I wanted to thank all those who joined our Tesla Life and Times Facebook page since last time. And since it's been a while, good grief, there are a lot of you. So many, in fact, that I don't actually have everyone's name. Facebook only lets you scroll back so far on your list of joiners. And I'm afraid that there were stretches where I was away from the internet for quite a while. So people were joining so quickly that the list couldn't scroll back that far. So, while I have most people on this list, if you're one of the people whose names I can't go back now and find, well, thank you so much for joining, and I'm sorry that I can't thank you by name. Those that I can thank by name include Michelle Biro, Al Allen, Red Wallace, Mark Phelps, 
Ted Charette, Tony Grant, Cornell Adrian, Andre Breton, George Dimitris Mulas, Chital Modi, Christina Giriomen Kate, Susan Holt, Jonathan Rocker, Asad Gam Ami, Farhan Ashraf, Karam Draudi Nudlab, Simone Abreu Freitas, Norma Marie, Fernando Mania, Francis S. Lestinga, Gio Menzoni, Maria Sharanak, Eric Boucher, Haley Cornier, Owen Ul Hassan, Oda Chipman, Mark Liu, Linda Neves, Maximus, Mohammed Umer Mehmoud, David Lester, Daniela Kakala, Emilio Basil, Thomas Hall, Michael Wace, Sonia Rispoli, Joe Alejandro Mac Escamila, Igor Jovanovic, Swagata Carr, Stephen Donoso, Robert Sussini, R.L. Baker, Jesh Saldivar, Tony Hughes, Kumar Kumar, M.O. Mosby, Kevin Cruz, Slobodan Jovanovic, Lionel White, Jose Cosco, Noel Walker, Monica Rodriguez, Robert Jeffrey. Also, there were a couple of people whose names posted in non-Western character sets, so I plugged them into Google Translate, and I hope the results are accurate. Merdad Nuri and Nikolish Kerbelski. And based on Facebook stats, there are now listeners in 45 countries. I see some additional hits from other countries when I look at my stats on the website, so I don't think this is a complete list. Apologies if I miss your country, and double apologies if I've missed your country and your name at the same time. But, according to Facebook, listeners come from the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, India, Serbia, Italy, Mexico, Norway, Turkey, Philippines, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Brazil, Germany, Greece, Croatia, Australia, Bangladesh, Morocco, Netherlands, Poland, Azerbaijan, Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Algeria, Finland, Ghana, Hungary, Indonesia, Ireland, Isle of Man, which I don't know why it comes to its own country, Jordan, Latvia, Myanmar, New Zealand, Peru, Portugal, Thailand, Taiwan, Ukraine, Argentina, Colombia, Laos, Romania, and Costa Rica. And shoutouts this time go to Robert Jeffrey recommended the podcast via Facebook. I really like this podcast. I binged on the first episodes and I'm always stoked to see a new episode released. I would recommend it to anyone. It's witty, entertaining, and well thought out. Thanks, Robert. And I'm glad that the comment feature finally worked as I know you said you were having some trouble. Tony Hughes also recommended us on Facebook. Very detailed and informative. The information about other world events that happened in the same year of the current episode is a nice touch as well. Started listening to this on my first shift at work, and now I'm on episode 15 on my second shift. Keep them coming. Much appreciated, Tony. And thank yous for iTunes reviews go out to Air Sea Land from the US, who says, Thank you for taking my interest in Nikola Tesla and turning it into a full-time addiction. Eric Hutchinson, also from the US, says, This is must-hear content about the life and times of Nikola Tesla, cleverly woven into the fabric of history a flawlessly produced and extremely entertaining podcast. Great job, Stephen. When can we expect Musk, the Life and Times podcast? Well, I do have plans, but it's not actually about Elon Musk. It's about the history of the men's fragrance. Listener Auror Horcrux from the US, who I'm going to go out on a limb and say is a big Harry Potter fan, says, 
I got to this a week ago and finished it this morning. I hope this continues. I like the fun facts. I like the birthdays and deaths. I can't find fault except that I'm all caught up now. Thanks. And apologies to fellow Canuck T page 22, who left a three-star review on iTunes saying, made it 10 minutes in, got annoyed by the random sound bites. Yeah, okay, I can see that, especially for the first episode. T-Page 22, if you're still out there, I hope you'll press on. Most episodes aren't as drop-heavy as that first one. I always assumed the drops might annoy some people, and fair enough, they're not for everybody. To be honest, the reason I include them is that it's kind of how I hear all this in my head as I'm writing each episode. I'll read something in the sources, or I'll write something that triggers some random reference from deep within the recesses of my brain, and... Well, I figured I'd put that into your brains, too, along with all of this info about Tesla's life. When this whole series is done, and since we're 22 episodes and 18 months in and only at 1893, who knows how many episodes from now that might be. Remember, Tesla dies in 1943, so we have another 50 years to go. When all this is said and done, I've toyed with the idea of using the core audio devoid of goofy sound effects to produce a YouTube version of the series in the style of a Ken Burns documentary. You know, using still photos of people and places, slow pans and push-ins, some gentle background music from the era. It's easy enough to do. Again, I just need the time. So, T-Page 22, if you're out there, maybe would that be more to your liking? Anyway, for those of you who have stuck with the show through the goofy sound effects, What do you think of the idea of an eventual YouTube spin-off version of this podcast? Shoot me an email or a tweet to let me know. And if you haven't had a chance to leave a rating or review either on Facebook or wherever you happen to get your podcasts, I hope you might take a minute to do so now. Each of those reviews and ratings helps the show become more easily findable in searches, and the more ratings and review a show has, the more likely someone who just stumbles upon it might actually take a chance and listen. And if you know someone who loves podcasts, I hope you'll recommend this one to them. Much like books, nothing sells a podcast like word of mouth. Thanks for all your help. So, where were we? Ah, yes, the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. What is a World's Fair, anyway? A World's Fair, World Expo, Universal Exposition, or International Exposition is a large international exhibition designed to showcase the achievements of nations. World's Fairs grew out of the tradition of French national exhibitions, which culminated in the French Industrial Exposition of 1844 in Paris. This fair was followed by other national exhibitions in continental Europe and the United Kingdom. The early days of the World's Fair, up to the 1930s, were especially focused on trade and were famous for the display of technological inventions and advancements. World expositions were the platforms where state-of-the-art science and technology from around the world came together. And the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, which we'll talk about in a minute, was no different. Okay, so, who decides who gets a World's Fair and when they get it? Well, prior to 1928, nobody, really. What we think of today when we think of a World's Fair started with the 1851 Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, which ran for six months in the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park, London. The idea for such an exhibition was spearheaded by Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, and he... 
he just kind of did it. That then became the model for subsequent world's fairs, which were held every few years thereafter, basically whenever and wherever a group decided to set one up. Seriously, like, whenever. Sometimes as many as seven or eight years would elapse between expos, and other times, like in 1888 in Barcelona and 1889 in Paris, remember the 1889 Exposition Universelle in Paris that Tesla visited? Times like that, they'd be scheduled essentially back-to-back. So, when in 1890, the United States decided to hold a World's Fair in 1893 to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the discovery of the New World by Christopher Columbus, which is why it was called the Columbian Exposition, they, well, they just kind of did it. Now, I know what you're thinking. 1893? Wasn't it 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, not 1493? So weren't they off by a year and celebrating the 401st anniversary of the discovery of the New World? Well, technically, yes. Yes, they were. But before you go thinking they screwed it up and you start decrying the state of American public school education, there's actually a simple explanation. There was also set to be a presidential election held in 1892, and the conveners of the exhibition didn't want the expo to distract from the election, so they pushed it a year. So, while people were in fact celebrating the 401st anniversary, everyone just kind of ignored that fact and pretended that they were celebrating the 400th anniversary. Kind of like how everyone celebrated New Year's 2000 as the start of the new millennium, when, technically, it didn't actually start until 2001. Because, as everyone knows, since there was no year zero, the millennium doesn't begin until the year 2001, which would make your party one year late. And thus, quite lame. And since I know you're wondering who won, the presidential election of 1892 was a rematch of the closely contested 1888 election. Running were Republican incumbent Benjamin Harrison, who won in 1888, and Democratic challenger and former president who lost in 1888, Grover Cleveland. But this time, it was Cleveland who was victorious in 1892, And by winning, Cleveland became the first former president to be returned to the office after a defeat. And that's your fun fact for today. The world's Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago. So, why Chicago? I mean, there was a competition. They didn't just, like, pick Chicago's name out of a hat. Chicago beat out New York City, Washington, D.C., and St. Louis for the honor of hosting the fair. But in retrospect, it almost had to be Chicago. Chicago in the 1890s was already America's second city. As of the 1890 census, Chicago passed Philadelphia to become the country's second largest city by population, after New York. It had risen like a phoenix from its own ashes, those being the ashes of the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, and the city had not only rebuilt since then, but had actually doubled in population between 1880 and 1890. Mark Twain once described Chicago as a place where, quote, they are always rubbing the lamp and fetching up the genie, and contriving and achieving new impossibilities. Chicago was the up-and-coming American city at the time, the city of possibility. It was the city that many thought might soon surpass New York as America's premier metropolis. Chicago was America's central railway depot. It was the hub of three dozen rail lines that crisscrossed the country. Commodities were a key part of its economy, 
Chicago was America's grain broker, lumberyard, and meatpacker. It was soon to become its most productive forger of steel. Chicago was home to the Sears and Roebuck Company, the nation's largest retailer. Chicago boasted two dozen skyscrapers and more than 200 millionaires, and it was the most ambitious of those men who won the right to organize the World's Fair. As part of the grand plans for the World's Columbian Exposition, electric light, that marvel of the age, was to play a major part in the design of the fairgrounds. And so, the Expo opened up bids to light the fair. You recall from last time that in the late 1880s and early 1890s, George Westinghouse was wrapped up in trying to save his company, so he was too busy to pay attention to the call for proposals. Instead, the newly formed General Electric Company under Charles Coffin, as virtually the only other player in the market, was only too happy to submit an extortionate bid to light the fair. In mid-March 1892, General Electric submitted a bid of $38.50 per arc light for 6,000 lights, or approximately $1,100 US dollars per light in 2019 dollars. In vivid contrast, just the previous October, World's Fair officials had paid a third of that price, just $11 per arc light, to Chicago Edison, before Morgan's trustification, to light the fair construction site for night work. The fair committee, not liking to be gouged, promptly sidestepped Coffin's $38.50 bid and worked out cheaper arrangements, $20 in Arclight, or $550 today, with several smaller firms that were not part of the GE Electrical Trust. The local papers gloated, cannot rob the fair, and cut a high bid in two, electric light combine humbled, and euchred the trust, exposition directors ahead, read some of the headlines. But the fair needed dynamos to power the lights, and when a call for tenders went out, Coffin stuck to his extortionate ways. He submitted a bid of $15.78, or $435 in today's dollars, per horsepower. These dynamos tended to be in the 250 horsepower range, so each one would run a whopping $3,900, or $107,000 per dynamo in today's currency. Once again, Irate fair directors simply went around GE and were able to secure a deal with a small firm for dynamos at a budget-friendly $2.50 per horsepower, roughly $70 today, making each dynamo only $625, or just over $17,000 apiece in today's money. By April 1892, a year before the World's Fair would open, the committee opened up bids for the biggest and most important of the fair's electrical contracts. 92,000 outdoor incandescent lamps that would light the fairgrounds for six months. But by April 1892, there were really only two firms big enough to make a bid on that scale, General Electric and Westinghouse. And with George Westinghouse still working to save his company, Charles Coffin was only too happy to place an unopposed bid for the lighting contract, believing he could essentially quote whatever price he wanted. So imagine his indignation when, on April 2nd, after bidding had closed, he discovered that a second bid for the lighting contract had been received. Not from the Westinghouse firm, and not even from an electric lighting company. Instead, the GE bid was opposed by the Southside Machine and Metalworks, run by an otherwise unknown businessman named Charles F. Lockstead. General Electric's bid was for $18.50 per lamp. 
$510 today, or a total cost of $1.72,1893, a staggering $47.5 million today. Southside Machine and Metalworks bid was nearly two-thirds cheaper, $6.80 a lamp, or $190 today, for a total cost of $625,600 in $1893, or roughly $17 million today. Who was Lockstead? people wondered. Could Southside Machine and Metalworks be trusted to do the work? Could they actually pull it off? No one was sure. This, apparently, included Lockstead himself. No sooner had he lodged his bid than he reached out to George Westinghouse, asking his help in fulfilling the terms of the bid. The timing, it turned out, was perfect. Westinghouse had finally dug himself and his company out of the hole. With the recapitalization of the Westinghouse Electric Light Company, Westinghouse was flush with cash and looking to take on his only real rival, General Electric, under Charles Coffin. The World's Fair bid provided the perfect opportunity. George Westinghouse had always envisioned the whole United States, and ultimately the whole world, illuminated by alternating current. The chance to have his company show off his system capabilities to the world for six full months at a World's Fair, well, the opportunity seemed tailor-made. It wasn't about money for Westinghouse. It was about exposure. And if he got a chance to stick it to Charles Coffin in the process, well, what a nice perk that was. Agreeing to join forces with Lockstead, Westinghouse informed the committee that Westinghouse Electric Light would be joining and guaranteeing the Southside Machine and Metalworks bid. Thus began the latest campaign in the War of the Currents, the Battle of Chicago. It's worth noting that, at first, not even his own people believed Westinghouse could win the bid. Mr. Westinghouse startled us by informing us that he was going to Chicago, Illinois to get the contract, recalled Westinghouse draftman E.S. McClelland years later. No one took him seriously in this venture. None of us dreamed that he would be successful in this mission. But Westinghouse was undeterred. He called his public relations man, Ernest H. Heinrichs, to his office. Do you know any newspaper men in Chicago well? Westinghouse asked. Heinrichs replied that he didn't. So Westinghouse dispatched him to Chicago with orders to meet some. Hendricks was going to lay the groundwork for Westinghouse's side of the story. Though he was without contacts in Chicago, Heinrichs did have an old friend in Pittsburgh who worked for the Associated Press. They hopped a train for Chicago, and using his friend's AP connections, they made the rounds of the local newspaper offices, introducing the Chicago Press Corps to the Westinghouse story. In the meantime, Heinrichs later wrote, Mr. Westinghouse himself arrived at the Auditorium Hotel, and no time was lost in taking the newspaper men to see him. His magnetic personality, his affability, his genial manner and straightforwardness completely won the entire press. The Chicago reporters, already inclined to dislike the Edison Electrical Trust, embraced George Westinghouse, painting him as the scrappy underdog in the story and the only one who would give Chicago a fair deal. Seeing he faced competition after all, Coffin dispatched his surrogates with a reduced bid of $6 per light, $165 today, which slightly undercut the Westinghouse bid. However, Coffin's decision not to make the updated offer himself incensed the Chicago Press Corps, who over the course of weeks 
called Coffin out in their newspaper columns over such shabby treatment and his transparently greedy original bid. The clamor only stopped when the fair's president, the Dickensianly named Harlow Higginbotham, announced a new and final round of bids due in early May 1892. The Chicago Times headline pretty clearly gives away that particular paper's preferred candidate. It read, We'll underbid the trust. Mr. Westinghouse promises to make electrical fur fly. And so it was that on Monday, May 16th, George Westinghouse and his lawyer Charles Terry arrived at the World's Fair's offices, where two dozen other men had assembled for the reading of the bids. Charles Coffin, however, was not among them. Instead, he dispatched Captain Eugene Griffin, a second vice president for General Electric, along with two Chicago-area managers. The bid box, a sealed, locked iron box, was opened to reveal once again only two bids. General Electric's was read aloud first. They proposed a DC-only bid of $577,485, or an AC-only bid of $480,694, a third the price of their original bid earlier in the year. Westinghouse's bid was next. The first proposal was for a combination DC-AC bid at $499,559, undercutting the GE bid by about 13%. However, Westinghouse's coup de grace was his AC-only bid, $399,000 even, $80,000 below GE's best offer. Daniel H. Burnham, the fair's construction director, said outright that Westinghouse should be awarded the bid. But it wasn't so straightforward. As at least one later memoir claimed, there were among the committee members General Electric stockholders who were determined to see the GE bid succeed. The committee retreated to a locked office where they remained until well after dark. At 7 p.m. that evening, the exhausted committee adjourned until morning. As they all left, Westinghouse said to a daily inter-ocean reporter, quote, there is not much money in the work at the figures I have made, but the advertisement will be a valuable one, and I want it. The next day, when deliberations resumed, Captain Griffin of GE made the argument to the committee that going with the Westinghouse bid was far too risky, since Westinghouse couldn't possibly carry out the contract because of an injunction GE had brought against Westinghouse regarding what they argued was the infringement of GE patents in the manufacture of Westinghouse's light bulbs. The very light bulbs Westinghouse was promising to install 92,000 of at the World's Fair. At least one of the fair directors saw the irony in this and complained to a reporter for the Daily Interocean. Quote, for many years, the Edison Company contented itself with flooding the country with circulars trying to ridicule the Westinghouse system. One morning, it suddenly awoke to find it had a competitor. Now it says that if the contract is given to Westinghouse, an injunction will head him off. One moment's thought will show how great a bluff is made. Indeed, Westinghouse laughed off the suggestion that he wouldn't be able to fulfill the contract, telling reporters, quote, I have about 100,000 lamps, either completed or partly so, at the works, and there will be no difficulty in furnishing material. I am required to have between 5,000 and 10,000 lamps installed by the 1st of October. This is an easy task. There will be no difficulty in furnishing the entire plant by the time of the opening of the exposition. However, that wasn't strictly true. Remember last time when we talked about the seven years incandescent light bulb war? 
Well, this isn't that. This all stemmed from the follow-up litigation brought by GE as a rearguard action aimed at crippling Westinghouse's bid for the World's Fair. GE brought suit against the Westinghouse company, claiming it was infringing on several of Edison's long-standing patents that covered incandescent light bulb design. Westinghouse's planned bulb for the fair was one in which the bulb was made in a single piece with the glass bottom fused to the wires, ensuring a near-perfect vacuum. At this point, every well-informed electrician, including Westinghouse himself, fully expected GE to win. What no one could know yet was something we talked about last time, GE's threats to only sell their light bulbs to approved clients and vendors. And you can bet that Westinghouse wouldn't be one. The question was whether GE would be judicially ordered to sell Edison bulbs to anyone other than their own customers. It was agreed by the fair committee to put off awarding the contract for a few days while they consulted the fair's lawyers. On May 23rd, Westinghouse once again returned to Chicago at the request of the committee, and a new proposal was put to him. The committee proposed to split the contract in two, awarding some of the business to Westinghouse and some to General Electric. As you can imagine, Westinghouse didn't care for this suggestion. He argued that he had put forward the lowest bid, and he should get the whole contract. GE's Captain Griffin again raised the specter of the light bulb patent issue, so the committee asked if Westinghouse was willing to post a $1 million bond guaranteeing the contract. Westinghouse agreed on the spot. That's the equivalent of $27.6 million today, and Westinghouse didn't even flinch. But that still didn't clinch it for him. The committee once again withdrew for hours and wrangled over the decision. Finally, the committee agreed at 7.30 p.m. to vote. Quickly and unanimously, they awarded the contract, the whole contract, to Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company. Then, like a cartoon villain, Captain Griffin leapt to his feet and threatened that when the light bulb patent ruling went GE's way, which everyone, Westinghouse included, knew it eventually would, the Westinghouse bid would, quote, be entirely in our power. He will not be able to make his own lamps and he can only buy from us. We will not injure the fair, but we will not let him continue his contract. Westinghouse simply picked up his black umbrella and headed home to get to work. The electrical engineer, covering the proceedings, wondered if Westinghouse would really go through with the fair contract given the pitfalls and the $1 million bond. Quote, Mr. Westinghouse may not care to put up so large a bond, and the amount does seem rather heavy, but he's not the kind of man to stop short after having gone so far. As soon as George Westinghouse returned to Pittsburgh, he marched over to his company's machine shop and summoned E.S. McClelland, his top draftsman. Westinghouse informed McClelland that he had won the Chicago contract, much to McClelland's amazement. Remember, not even people inside the Westinghouse company thought he could actually beat out GE's bid. Westinghouse then began to dictate the specs for what he needed to fulfill the Chicago World's Fair contract. This is McClelland's recollection of the conversation, as recorded in his autobiography. Mr. Westinghouse, I want an engine. Reply, yes, sir. 1,200 brake horsepower. Yes, sir, with considerable trepidation. 200 revolutions per minute. Engines of that size usually ran about 75 RPMs. Yes, sir, with considerable consternation. 150 pounds per square inch boiler pressure, non-condensing. Yes, sir. Flash lubrication. Yes, sir. Must go in such and such space. Yes, sir. I'll be in again at 2 o'clock to see what you have. Exit Mr. Westinghouse wrote McClelland, leaving me in a daze, 
It is hard to describe the feeling of consternation that request caused. We were building 250 horsepower engines then. A 1200 brake horsepower engine to operate at 200 revolutions per minute seemed to me to be entirely out of all reason. The drafting department went into overdrive, scrambling to come up with some sort of design to show the old man, as everyone in the company called Westinghouse. They got a reprieve of sorts when Westinghouse called over a few hours later to say that he wouldn't make it back until the following day. McClelland and another man stayed on in the drafting room until 2 a.m., trying to come up with something to show Westinghouse in the morning. First thing the next day, they convened to the shop to show Westinghouse their plans. It had less than a day to prepare, and the sense that their solution was less than ideal was palpable in the room just before Westinghouse showed up. But then, a bit of serendipity came into play. Someone turned the drawing board on its side for a better view, and suddenly, everything came together. A big part of the problem had been trying to get an engine of the specs Westinghouse needed into the small space he demanded. But looking at the engine tipped on its side, this setting of the board on end, strange as it may seem, gave us the solution to the problem, McClelland recounts. As a vertical engine, there was space to spare. With this solution flashed upon our minds, the leading engine draftsmen seemed to be electrified and became wildly enthusiastic. Westinghouse strode in, looked over the now vertical plan, and said, How soon may I have four of them? And so the Westinghouse team committed to powering the Chicago World's Fair with new and untried electrical machines and steam engines of a totally new design. No pressure. Westinghouse, of course, also had the little issue of how to provide 92,000 bulbs to the fair without infringing on the Edison light bulb patents. While he'd brushed off the concerns of the committee back in Chicago, the truth was this was a major hurdle for the company, and one that didn't have an easy or apparent solution. In truth, quote, matters were critical, not to say dangerous, wrote his friend and biographer Henry Prout. The need for such a lamp was immediate and urgent. Combing through the company's patent holdings, Westinghouse pulled out a light bulb design that he did hold rights to, and that did not infringe the Edison patents. It was called the Sawyerman Stopper Light, and it used a two-piece design with a low-resistance filament sitting in an iron and glass stopper that was fitted like a cork into a glass globe filled with nitrogen and then sealed. The stopper could be removed and burned-out filaments replaced, and it skirted Edison's patents, which were all based on a single-piece design. The two-piece Sawyer-Man design wasn't nearly as good as the Edison bulb, but it didn't have to be. It just had to be good enough to fulfill the contract, get through the World's Fair, and be a useful stopgap until the Edison patents ran out in 1894. Westinghouse, who was, remember, himself an accomplished inventor and engineer, personally tinkered with the design of the Sawyerman bulbs for some months, perfecting it to the point where it could be manufactured in vast quantity. Westinghouse set up a glass factory in a section of the Westinghouse Airbrake Company in Allegheny, and went there daily to teach the operatives running the grinding machines how to make the stoppers perfectly snug for the lamps. E.E. E. Keller, Westinghouse's World's Fair manager, recounted Westinghouse's, quote, own enthusiasm at having overcome a great obstacle. He was bubbling over like a boy. He explained the operation of the grinders, and I saw that the men seemed imbued with the idea that this was a game to beat an opponent who held all the aces, and that they were having a lot of fun doing it. He had a sort of magnetic influence on the workmen. It certainly was a great delight to realize that, in spite of what seemed a hopeless situation, the boss was going to furnish lamps without paying tribute. 
he certainly lifted the worry from me. So, in October 1892, when the courts ruled in G.E.'s favor, as everyone Westinghouse included expected that they would, George Westinghouse was able to laugh off the decision's impact on his business. Having anticipated it, we shall not be hampered by it, he told the New York Times. Our business has been arranged with a view to this happening. The patent sustained has almost expired anyway, and furthermore, such developments have been made in the electrical world in the last year or two that the decision is shorn of much of its effect. Westinghouse placed an ad in the very next issue of Electrical Engineer for the new stopper lamp. The magazine, in an editorial comment, noted that because the new style lamp could be almost entirely machine-made, it would be cheaper than an Edison lamp. Indeed, when all was said and done, the new Westinghouse glass factory churned out a quarter of a million lamps in less than a year. At this point, I imagine Captain Griffin of General Electric, who could not make good on his earlier threat, I imagine him jumping up and down and shouting, My plan would have worked if it wasn't for you pesky kids and that pup named Scooby-Doo. But, and I'm sure you knew there had to be a but, that wasn't the end of GE trying to torpedo the Westinghouse contract for the World's Fair. In November 1892, GE asked a federal court to stop Westinghouse from making Edison-style bulbs. Westinghouse had continued to do so on the sly. Westinghouse blasted GE in court papers as, quote, a most vicious trust, trying to drive honest competitors out of business, and suggested GE be investigated under the two-year-old Sherman Antitrust Act. Westinghouse demanded that the court force GE to sell their competitors' light bulbs. The judge, however, declined to do anything for either side, so GE decided it had one last trick up its sleeve. This is where the whole thing gets super coincidental, like something out of a bad movie. The Westinghouse family spent Christmas 1892 in Manhattan. On the afternoon of December 23rd, Westinghouse had completed some business with his friend and legal counsel, Charles Terry, and the two had just boarded the uptown elevated train when they bumped into longtime chief counsel for the Edison Electric Light Company, Rosevener P. Lowry. Despite their epic legal battles, the men were all friends, and they began to catch up. As they were chatting, Lowry mentioned that one of his many co-counsels, Frederick Fish, was away in Pittsburgh. Westinghouse realized something was up and ushered Terry off the train at the next stop. What is Fish doing in Pittsburgh? Westinghouse asked. Whatever the reason, both men were sure it could mean nothing good for the Westinghouse company. They sent a telegram to a Westinghouse lawyer in Pittsburgh, instructing him to be at the federal court the next day, the morning of Christmas Eve. And when that lawyer arrived, he indeed found GE's Frederick Fish. It turned out that GE was now filing suit get an injunction against Westinghouse making any of these Sawyer Man stopper bulbs too, claiming that it infringed on their now rock-solid patent. GE knew that if they could shut down Sawyer Man production for even a few weeks, they might torpedo the whole Westinghouse World's Fair contract. But with a Westinghouse lawyer on hand to object, the judge decided to put off a decision until the new year. Once the case was reconsidered in early 1893, the judge quickly concluded that the stopper lamp did not infringe on the Edison patents. As a Westinghouse biographer summed it up, although more or less harassing warfare was kept up afterwards, this unexpected proceeding in court so far cleared the way for Westinghouse that he was able to proceed with the manufacture of his lamps and carry out his great undertaking at Chicago. (coughs) Next time, 
There will be a brief ceasefire in the War of the Currents while the nation enjoys the world's Columbian Exposition. We'll look into the building of the fair itself, the myriad new inventions, innovations, and products that the fair gave birth to, and we'll see Tesla's inner showman shine forth once again as he hosts what would become a series of legendary demonstrations of the power of alternating current. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. As always, please spread the word, recommend the show to a friend, or share links to the latest episodes via your social media. It really does help. Please take just a minute to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review like the ones I mentioned at the top. As reviews come in, I'll be sure to do a shout-out as a thank you. Past episodes can be found at www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list, you can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at katowich.com or on Twitter with the handle at rmancato. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Cottowich.